The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and a columnist for the New Daily. And I'm Stephen May, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder, activist and City of Manningham councillor. And we are The Money, the Money Cafe. Cafe. Hey Stephen, have you been to any uh, good AGMs lately? Well... Well, when I say been to, uh, you know... Attended online. Attended online. Yes, well wearing my pyjamas, I did attend the AFIC AGM. The other day, two days ago, and I... AFIC stands for? AFIC, Australian Foundation Investment Company, Australia's biggest LIC, listed investment company. They've got 165,000 retail shareholders and they invest $8.4 billion in 65 stocks. So they're sort of the nearest competitor to an ETF uh, in terms of you can buy the market. They've got a great blue chip board. And, um, and did you give that blue chip board a hard time? They're, they're, they're nice, very nice, boring people. They're, they're nice, boring, establishment Melbourne people. And we've just passed from, you know, yet another JB Weir alumni becomes the chairman. So Craig Drummond, who's also the chairman of Geelong Footy Club and Transurban, he took over the chair at the meeting. Historically, you've had Bruce Teal, Terry Campbell, John Patterson. So it's, it's, it's absolutely the core of the Melbourne establishment. And the, well, the JB Weir. Yeah. Remember Australia 2000, like which JB Weir cooked up with NAB, which was all those cross shareholdings yes. in, in the in the 1980s to stop the Allen Bonds and Robert Holmes Accords from taking over all the blue chip companies that AFIC like to invest in. <laughs> anyway, what so, did you? Well, some fun things. So, look, so they, what, what torrid time they, did you give well, them? I mean, it's it's useful to go to these AGMs just from a stock tipping point of view. Because these are the smart people. You look at what they're buying and selling. So over the year, they sold down $225 million worth of shares in NextDC, Brambles, Orica, Iris and InvoCare. And they bought $279 million in BHP, NAB, IDP, Domino's and Santos. So they were the, the major five tweaks to the portfolio over the year. I was quite amused when the inevitable PWC question came up. They've been your auditor for 95 years. Uh, have you ever thought about changing? 95, 95 years? Really? Years, yes, yes. Well, things don't change very Bloody fast. Hell, that's at that's right. so, But what I liked about the answer was the chairman, the outgoing chairman, John Patterson, said, look, when we had to rotate the audit, because you've got to rotate the partner every five years, we interviewed three different partners. So it wasn't, it wasn't a tender between uh, Ernst & Young, Deloitte, and it was a battle between three in-house partners. So Ziggy's report was that PwC is too revenue-focused. Then this is where you've got partners tearing each other apart as to who can get the naming rights or the signing gig at companies because they're competing amongst themselves as to who's the most impressive signing partner. Well, so further evidence that we're dealing with an oligopoly of big accounting firms Really? Yes. Because uh, they compete with each, with themselves. Correct. Well, after 95 years, they should be re-tendered and told not to tender, not to bid. Anyway, but uh, look, it's a good AGM. I, was, I, I did my usual, I've got a new six-question limit. So a company which is good enough to do a hybrid and offer shareholders an 
online ability to participate. I will now limit myself to six questions as a reward because it's unfair to smash people <laughs> that make themselves smashable. Don't you think? Like you got to look. I'm sure that's going to encourage yeah. every listed company to go hybrid, yeah, just but so they, that they can they keep their even main questions they, to six. They censored two of my questions, and one of them was this. Quote, David Peaver was up for election, the former chairman of Cricket Australia. So I said, well done for maintaining your ban on investing in specialist gambling, gambling companies and for dumping Pokey's giant Endeavour Group shortly after it was demerged by Woolworths. It's fallen almost 20% since we exited, so well done. From a shareholder point of view, the gambling ban's only miss has been aristocrat, and thank goodness we never owned Star Entertainment. Could candidate David Peaver please comment on his personal view on this unwritten gambling ban policy we have and how he reconciles with that that with committing to new multi-million dollar Bet365 contracts when chair of Cricket Australia? Now, of course... So they what they, they said? They didn't ask it. No, so this is a very it, right? common thing is that when you get a really curly question which puts someone on the spot for hypocrisy or something... They just censor it. And that's the great weakness of the online AGM is because they can that, choose when you're on the, the spot, questions. You, you, have, you can stand up. If and I'd stood up and said that, they'd have had to deal with it. But sitting in my pyjamas in Manningham, they were able to censor it. And that's why you always have to have a physical component to an AGM. And by the way... I love the way you say we. Yes. I mean, we, the is, shareholders, I've got, ten, I've got ten of them. You've got ten shares. <laughs> right. And I've got two... That's we. I've got two physical AGM dinosaurs to call out. So Jerry Harvey, right, Harvey Norman, they're having their AGM at Sydney's Olympic Park uh, at the end of November. And if you want to participate online, you can dial in and listen on the telephone. So Australia's biggest seller of TVs and computers is refusing to have a video webcast, let alone online participation, voting. But with Jerry, you can dial in and you can listen. What, collect call a, from a payphone? Is it Jerry or and what? I presume it's at Olympic Park so that they can squeeze in the 50,000 people well, who that's are going right. so to no, attend. So no one will – their aim is to only have six people there. They want to have a, a, a News Corp or a Fox-style AGM. So last time I went to New, to Los Angeles – only six of us went through Rupert's rigmarole, which was turn up at the nearest Westfield, get frisked by security, register as long as you'd pre-registered two weeks in advance, jump on the company bus and be taken to the AGM where they take the phone away after one question and one, one minute. So Rupert on, December, on November 17 is doing it again. He's saying farewell. Tony Abbott is joining the Fox Court board. If I fly all the way to LA for that, I'll have to go through that rigmarole because it's a physical-only AGM where you register in a shopping centre car park, Westfield, and then you get on the company bus, and by then everyone's just, no one can be bothered, and that's how they get away with no scrutiny, no questions, and so Tony Abbott won't be grilled when he joins the Fox Court board on November 17 because there'll be no shareholders asking questions. Holy anyway, way. enough of this. Billionaires behaving badly, etc. What about the RBA and the bond route? Has the RBA made the right call and are you worried by the route? Uh, okay, there are two separate things. The the Reserve Bank, um, of course, made the right call. Uh, I mean, I thought it was interesting that um, uh, you can always, there's always something for everyone in the RBA statement. So in the statement they say, well, uh, the reason we're leaving rates on hold is because all the data uh, points to inflation – coming down to within the 2 to 3% par- uh, target band within the forecast time period, which is late 2025. Okay, so two years off, right? 
and they're saying it'll, it's fine, inflation's going to come down to 2 to 3% in two years, so therefore we don't need to put up interest rates anymore. At the end, they say, um, however, some, uh, some further tightening of monetary policy may be required. Uh, if the data changes, right, which is a statement of the obvious. Um, but everyone goes, oh, they've maintained their t- tightening bias. And uh, and a few people will uh, respond to that by saying, oh, they're going to put up rates in November. Well, crikey, no, they're not. That's ridiculous. I mean, well, it's not ridiculous because on October the 25th, the June quarter CPI comes out. Mm. And if, look, if that's a sudden jump in inflation for the June quarter – well, they'll probably do something about it. What about if the currency keeps weakening? I mean, no Australian likes to feel proud about their country with a currency that begins with a five. If we get down to the high 50s, because we're trending down, oh, do you a, think there'll be a little bit of we've got to get the currency long, up, put the rates up? It's a long way from that, thing? mate. I mean, look, that, that's, that's, uh, the currency is now 63. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a long way from 50. Be, I don't be. think the Reserve Bank will do anything unless the reserve unless the currency gets well into the 50s. Well into the 50s, yeah. So yeah. from a currency supporting point of view, you don't think it'll be a driver. Okay. Well, it, it, only if it shows up in inflation. I mean, it's true yeah. that uh, a falling currency does lead to higher inflation. Yes. But I think they'd need to see the evidence in inflation first, uh, I think. But there, and there'd need to be other drivers of inflation. I mean, for example, there, there would need to be uh, no increase in unemployment. So we've got yep. the labour force data coming out on October the 19th. Yep. Um, for September, if if there's no increase... So I, mean, I mean, the other thing is going on, of course, is this argument about uh, what full employment is. Well, it's, not, it's a sort of a faux argument in a mm. way. The, the government's got this white paper that defines full employment as being everyone who wants a job should be able to find one without searching for too long. Uh, they don't say what the number is. The Reserve Bank at least says what the number is, which is 4.5% unemployment. Uh, they also define it. The Reserve Bank also defines that full employment as being everyone should have a job without searching for too long. But their number on that is 4.5%, right? Mm. Well, um, you know, they want uh, unemployment to go to 4.5%, which they reckon is full employment, which I reckon is rubbish. I mean, that's 680,000 people yeah, out of that's work. That's not full employment. No, come on. It's, it's basically, that's the. That's their definition of full employment, or at yeah. least what they regard as optimal unemployment yeah. for for the purposes without of controlling inflation. Without a wages inflation. breakout, without pockets of shortages yeah. in regions no, and but, sectors but, so, and skills, so the is, professions. What, what the hell does the government mean by full employment uh, with its, you know, definition? I mean, does it, uh, does it mean 4.5%? No, because they, they poured, um, uh, I was going to say, uh, I was going to. Uh, they poured manure all over the um, the no. uh, Reserve Bank definition in their white paper. Yes. So they were quite, you know, tipped a bucket on the Reserve Bank stuff, and uh, so it's not not four point five percent. So is full employment under the government's definition three point seven percent unemployment, yeah. uh, which is what it is now, uh, or is it less? Um, you know, like, and and if it is less, what are they going to do about it? And and. That's a good point. And, and speaking of employment, do you like the way Labor is currently going over the rorting of the asylum seeker situation? And it, it, it highlights the fundamental challenge for someone like Dutton and the Liberals is they want to bang that 
tough on migrants and tough on asylum seekers, but they've got to feed the the big employer beast. So big business loves cheap labour. And, you know, in America, the the biggest lobbyist for open borders is big business for cheap labour. And the unions obviously always want to keep labour out to maximise the price of Australian labour. It's a classic sort of closed shop. You don't want cheap competition coming in if you can overcharge. So it's interesting that that Labor now federally is coming out and saying, Dutton let 100,000 people in gaming the the asylum seeker system with work rights and people could work for 10 years whilst claiming they were clogged up in the system uh, trying to have an asylum claim. So it is a very tricky little battle. And we also need to, before we get off this topic, get onto the bond route. Are you worried by this bond route, Alan? Oh, well, look... uh uh, the, the US bond, 10-year bond yield is up to 4.7%, I think, which is the highest since 2007. Uh, uh, Australian bond yields are rising in, um, in sympathy. Uh, it's, it's worrying. And, oh, and, no, and really. an issuer like the state of Victoria cannot handle this. So we're borrowing a billion net a month in Victoria at the moment, net new borrowings. And we used to be able to do it at 1%. And now we're paying five, five and a half, like it's going up. So if you've got a huge debt and you've got a massive rollover program, the route in the bond market is actually terrible news for your budget and yeah, for yeah, your cash look, flows. It's, it's very like the uh, what's called the mortgage cliff for all these people who are on fixed rate, yeah, fixed rate mortgages correct. and they're coming off on variable rates and yeah. they're all having trouble. Well, um, you know... That's, that's the second true. the second biggest borrower in Australia is the state of Victoria. Just yeah. like Transurban's the biggest corporate borrower, but they've only got twenty billion. As Australia's biggest corporate borrower, it's only Transurban twenty billion. Victoria's one fifty five and rising at a billion a month. Yeah. I mean wouldn't you be worried? Yeah. Anyway, okay. look, we should just deal briefly with the Endeavour battle, the, the AGM on October thirty one. Bruce, on. These Bruce Matheson. I'm predicting that Bill Wavish, who's the Bruce Matheson candidate, will fail. Bruce Matheson, the pokies billionaire, is doing a massive... Is that because you're going to vote against him? ...dummy spit. I'll be voting against Bill Wavish. He's 74 and he's being backed by two 79-year-olds, Bruce Matheson and his mate Roger Corbett. So these are dinosaurs trying to do a board coup at Endeavour Group just because they were a tiny bit responsible on their pokies management and implemented Dan's reduced operating hours... 10 months early. So Bruce, the hardest man ever to run a pokies venue in Australia, that's why he's the biggest, he's outraged. It's costing us millions of dollars of revenue because we're not open between 4am and 10am every night in Victoria at our 80 venues. And the other thing I thought was very funny was he's written to the ASX demanding more information on why Endeavour didn't recommend Bill Wavish. And I'm saying... When is Endeavour going to reveal their pokies revenue? It's more than $1.5 billion. They don't disclose it. And here's Bruce writing to the ASX demanding Endeavour disclose something else when they still won't release the biggest thing about Endeavour, which is you're the world's biggest suburban poker machine operator. You're fleecing over a billion and a half off gamblers, being a ruthless operator, and you don't even tell the shareholders how much revenue you're making. Pretty obvious for me. Go get them, Steve. Yep. Okay. A, question be, time. Now, question. Now we had we had a we had a personal question. We had a visit. So, uh, from we had a, a visit. A, couple, a live question. A couple with a baby. With a baby. And Tara. So we've put it to the very top of the pops. Tara has asked. Um, 
the trade-off between sending their new child to a private school or saving those fees and putting them into a property that they can then give to their child when they turn 18. What's your advice on that, Alan? Private schools or property old, investment? Well, there's an old parable about uh, whether you uh, give someone fish or teach them how to go fishing. Um, so, <laughs> arguably, education is better. Yes. Um, uh, however, it depends a bit on the school zone they're in because, you know, if, they're in a, if they happen to live in a zone where the, the school's terrible, they might want to yes. consider a, a, a private school yeah, instead. And New South Wales has a lot more selective schools than Victoria, so yeah. I think that's a more viable option in the New South Wales system. And I'd certainly go public and save the money at the primary school level. The question is whether you, whether you invest... We spent four sixty thousand after tax on private schools for our three kids. Great networks, great education, um, but have a time again. Maybe not. It's a lot of money. <laughs> it's a lot of me too. After well, tax, I, I did the same. You'd be the same, yeah. So you know, uh, well, thirty thousand a year, uh, which is the per kid per child. So they've yeah. got one child at the moment. You know, or whether they have more, I suppose they will. But um, thirty thousand a year is not going to buy you a. A property, but it's going to provide them. Perhaps if you put that aside and invest it wisely, it'll provide them with enough to buy a property. That's true. So it is a decision. I think it depends a bit on the schooling. And uh, if the, if you've got a decent school, public school to go to, do that and um, put the money aside for them. But otherwise, anyway, there you go. Now Peter wants to know about why your ABC News reports are not vo- more available digitally. Well, they are. And he says that you're one of the great educators of the nation. And, um, yeah, well, but I, is it, is, I, totally I think it could be that. done better. Like, it should be up there, you know, at 7.30. It should be out there on the ABC social channels. Click here for Alan's report tonight. It is. But it's it's not, on the... Well, it's well. It, I look for your Twitter handle, and it's. I look. I was looking this morning on Twitter for last night well, from just, you, and it wasn't there. I know. Well, sometimes I go out, and, and I don't. <laughs> You're not tweet allowed it. to have a life, Alan. You've got I to service your social. But it's all. It is on the YouTube. It, it is on YouTube, right? Every just, night, every timely, night, timely. It's okay. it's actually on YouTube at exactly seven thirty. Okay. Every night. Well, there you uh, go. It's just that I don't tweet it every night because sometimes I'm not there and I'm doing something else. <laughs> um, like last night, for example, and then and then in the morning it's on the ABC website under the Kohler, I think it's Kohler Finance Report or something like that. And you know, even when David Chow does it, uh, when I'm not there, it's called the Kohler Report. So I don't know how he <laughs> feels about that. <laughs> anyway, now so, uh, number four, we've got Scott from Sunshine. Well, let me <laughs> let me. Come on, mate. But it's, it's, Stop hogging the questions. No, no, no. Right? It's, it's long and I've got, I can summarise it in two seconds. Why right. isn't the dividend payment date the same as the ex-dividend date? And the answer is, and I asked the ASX about this, the answer is that you need to be able to work out who you can give the money to and because you've got T plus two, so because you've got two days to settle a trade, you can't pay a dividend to someone who then has sold the shares earlier. So you always have to have the X date at least two days beforehand. But companies that make it three months, it's silly. Um, but I noticed that Macquarie, he mentions Macquarie, they go X dividend on May 15 every year and he's complaining about not getting the dividend until July 4. 
I'm saying, Scott, thank Macquarie for kicking your dividend into the new for ne- new tax year and saving you <laughs> tax 12 months. I think every company should pay one dividend a year on July the 1st, every year. So you should have this $200 billion dividend deluge that lands on July the 1st and then everyone's got 12 months to get their tax affairs together before they pay the associated tax on that. Speaking as a... Um, well, you're not speaking as a taxpayer, obviously. <laughs> Dan says, my question is about the dreaded wage price spiral. I understand this is bad for the overall economy, but it seems like it could be good in the long run for mortgage holders like myself. If my living costs are inflating but my wage is increasing to keep pace, doesn't this mean my mortgage is shrinking in real terms? Am I missing something? Well, go on. Yes. Well, look, in a way, you can inflate your way out of debt. So that is that is that is a, a commonly known phenomenon that your mortgage is a fixed number, and if you're benefiting from inflation, i.e., you've had a sudden wage increase, then you've got more money to pay back a fixed mortgage. But bracket creep will put you into a higher tax bracket, and if there is an inflation breakout, the Reserve Bank will probably come along and jack up interest rates, which will inflate the size of your interest payments. So I don't think. It's a panacea, but historic, historically, property bubbles have covered up bad debts because, you know, your business is going bad, but suddenly your, your head office is worth three times as much and your bad business and your too much debt is covered by the fact that you've benefited from inflation. Good answer. Now, Ben says, thanks for the answer last week, which was way better than your competing podcast version of Let's Just Read from the Interest Rates 101 textbook. But Ben wants to know... Why the hell are we beating inflation by beating the crap out of the poorest one-third of people? How do you get people with capital to reduce spending, to do their part in reducing inflation? Now, I reckon, and I've heard you say before, Alan, sitting at this leclerc table, that people with capital spend less and therefore the... As a proportion of of their income. But I would actually say... when the Reserve Bank puts up interest rates, they're not actually uh, targeting rich people to spend less. They're targeting businesses. So for a business which is sitting there going, do we spend 20 million building a new factory to make a 7% profit margin? If they can just leave their money in the bank and earn 7% in the bank, they're less likely to do that business investment and therefore there's less activity in the economy, which is less inflationary, et cetera, et cetera. So I actually think it's business that they're targeting. They're trying to slow down business activity. It's not not either or. I mean, they're also targeting mortgage holders, mortgagors. They're they're also targeting uh, the borrowers, household borrowers, and and that, as Ben says, uh, is one-third of the people, which is half of the two-thirds who uh, who own a house. And um, it is the case that... um, uh, they tend to cut back their spending more than the people who have got capital or who who benefit from higher interest rates uh, increase their spending. Hmm. So, you know, I mean, that's uh, that's the way it works. Now, Ratika is a recent university graduate who's just starting her first job in the M&A industry and is looking for some general advice about whether she should stick with ETFs or contribute to super or be a stock picker. And she's also asking for advice as to where she should get information from. Um, And I was going to say, well, look, I subscribe to all four newspapers, so three of which are paid by the ratepayers of Manningham. Outrageously. Thank them very much. I also uh, get a free subscription to this thing called uh, Eureka Report, uh, owned by some company called InvestSmart. I find they're quite useful. 
what do you reckon, Alan? Are you going to give the boss a plug in terms of uh, well, where people thing, can get the, good information for the, their Eureka report, investing journey? Uh, Eureka Report costs 300 or 330 a year, so uh, that's expensive. But there's actually quite a lot of information on the InvestMart website for free. Um, so you can, if you go into investmart.com.au, you'll find a fair bit of content and advice um, that you don't have to pay for. Uh, if you do, if you are up for paying for it, Eureka Report obviously, I think, is terrific. I uh, I also subscribe to the Financial Review, the Australian, and the Age. Um, uh, no one else pays for that. What about offshore, the FT uh, or I, Wall Fina- Journal, I subscribe or? to the Financial Times and the New York Times. Um, so I, New York Times. Yes. I subscribe to Bloomberg. Geez, you're su- doing well. I, I can't subscri- afford that. I subscribe to Gavacal, which is a research service, but that's fairly expensive, you know, in the thousands of dollars a year. Are you paying for that yourself? No. Who's paying for that? Investmart. Well, it's part, of my, it's part of my job. Can you give me your login details? I wouldn't mind a bit of that. Absolutely. Work from home, you know, feeling isolated, got to pay for everything myself. Um, but look, yeah, there are, there are plenty of actually, if you can look around, there are plenty of um, uh, subscriptions Global subscriptions that are yeah. worth having, and you know. Now, question eight: How's this for brevity? Liam wants to know what will cause a housing bubble to burst. What sort of things could cause that to happen? And I've got one for you. If Australia suddenly adopted a Singapore model of endless underpaid cheap foreign labour coming in from Bangladesh and other countries, that would dramatically reduce construction costs because there'd be slave labour all over construction sites a la Singapore and many countries, the Middle East, that would crash the property market in Australia because the replacement cost of housing would be significantly reduced without the CFMEU. Stephen, of course it wouldn't because there'd be all this extra demand for housing. I well, mean, come on. No, no, but in Singapore, they put the foreign workers up, you know, cheek by jowl in uh, public housing towers. It doesn't right. take up a lot of room at all. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, look, what the, uh, well, it's clear that if you look at history, the only things that, thing that things that have burst property bubbles in the past have been interest rates going up and APRA cracking down on bank lending to investors, which it did in, in 2017, and that led to a 9% fall in uh, house prices. Yeah, and immigration, the immigration flow um, will have an effect on house prices uh, as well, and as does the tax system. If they abolished uh, negative gearing without any uh, grandfathering of existing arrangements, then I do believe that would lead to a flood of... Uh, properties hitting the market because they'd be no longer tax-driven to hold it. And I'm a bit nervous about Dan, successor, Jacinta Allen and Tim Pallas. They already have the highest property taxes in the country and they are rolling out seemingly a new property tax every two weeks. Uh, So if you squeeze the lemon too hard through property taxes, that ultimately will also cause a property crash. So we've got time for a couple more, I think. So which ones are we going for? Uh, well, uh, Ian? Yeah, look, Ian's question is quite good, saying that uh, basically, is the US dollar going to be the do- dominant currency forever, or is there a genuine threat from things like uh, the, the new brick economies? Can the world get off the US dollar? Like we tried with crypto, gold standard. I think that's the number I, one I, reason why the Yanks will stay at number one through their dollar. Um, look, uh, uh, some countries are already starting to. Uh, either use rem, uh, Chinese currency for their contracts or 
their own currency. So, look, a lot of countries, third world countries in particular, are starting to get off the US dollar as their means of trade. So, look, it is starting to happen. I don't think it's going to result in some kind of earth-shattering switch. But the Americans have to be very careful how brutally they impose sanctions. That's right. Because if they're really brutal on third world countries or, you know, anyone dealing with Russia or whatever, then that's them abusing their hegemony with the currency and that will encourage others to seek alternatives. Yeah, that's alternatives. right. No, no, there is a sense that the that the United States weaponised the US dollar in um, uh, in its relations with Russia, trying to get them, you know, san- uh, the sanctions over Ukraine. And so the, that has caused a lot of disquiet among the other countries, so a lot of other countries. So that, that is causing... That to uh, to now Scott, Scott wants a whole episode of the Money Cafe on um, modern monetary theory MMT. Um, we are both a believer in MMT, and in fact, I was out trotting out my MMT policy yesterday on ABC Melbourne, saying nationalise transurban with printed money. The government is getting 188 billion of printed money back from the big banks on June 3rd next year, and I was saying, Albo, use one third of that to nationalise Transurban because it's distorting toll road and public policy decisions. So yes, we both believe in MMT. Well, yes, until it crashes the currency. <laughs> well, what we're not going to do is do a whole episode of Money Cafe about on modern monetary theory. Uh, apart from anything else, modern monetary theory is getting a bit. Uh, old these days with interest rates going up so much because it's actually a terrific policy or terrific idea when interest rates are low and uh, government debt is not expensive but when suddenly they're having to pay 5% or something for um, in interest on their debt, uh, you know, having a lot of debt is a problem. Um, but I did, I, I did have a um, column a while ago, when was it? Uh, September last year, so a year ago, in which I suggested that, that they should, the government should give the job of dealing with climate change to the Reserve Bank, mm. because and because actually the government can't print money, the Reserve Bank does, and the Reserve Bank is independent. Yeah, but so they the, can print money and give it to anyone doing a decent climate investment. Because the, dealing with climate change is going to be so expensive, either both to deal with it and to deal with the consequences of it, that probably there is going to have to be money created, right? And the Reserve Bank printed money to deal with. COVID-19 and I reckon climate change is as big an emergency as COVID-19. I mean the Americans have got $33 trillion of debt lots of it printed and our currency is still falling against them as they go to government shutdown, sack the speaker and all sorts of Trump madness. In fact 30 30 or 40% of that government debt is owned by the the Federal Reserve. That's right so it's not real debt because they can just make it up they can create it out of thin air by pushing a button on the computer. Now, your VIP has just turned up to the cafe. Yeah, no. We're, so um, we better go and attend to his. Uh, he's no, we've had half an hour. That's it. That's yeah, it. That's no, we're, we've done well. So, um, Okay. Thanks for listening, everyone, to today's episode of The Money Cafe. We'll be back next week. I'll be back next week with James Thompson. Uh, so send in a question for us by emailing themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until then, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, etc. And I'm Stephen Mayne, contributor at Eureka, etc.